Hello and welcome to this edition of Two Worlds, One Country, the show where we talk to folks who are working on overcoming the things that divide us and most often the rural-urban divide. I'm your host, Anthony Flacavento, and I'm thrilled this today to have as my guest a very dear friend and a colleague in farming and the local food movement named Dwayne McIntyre. Dwayne and his family live uh, about 35 minutes from the town of Abingdon and are a major part of the Abingdon Farmer's Market and way beyond that. I'll let Dwayne tell you a little bit about it, but they have a very diversified, uh, environmentally sustainable farm with multiple animal species. It's called Goshen Homestead, and we're going to dig into it a little bit. And And I want to remind listeners that this is part of our series about the rural New Deal that Ruby recently produced, which encourages the government to invest in rural communities, but also to get out of the way of local farmers and entrepreneurs who assist them rather than to handicap them in their efforts to build a more prosperous rural community where they are. So welcome again, and Dwayne, so glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Anthony. I really uh, second that second half of that initiative you're talking about. Just get out of the way. <laughs> yes, yes. A lot of farmers and a lot of small businesses absolutely feel that way. So, Dwayne, I'm going to start with a little bit about you. You're not originally from Southwest Virginia. Tell us how long you've been here. And you came from Pennsylvania. What brought you down here? Well, we've been here actually now, and it's kind of mind-blowing sometimes to think about it, 17 years. Wow. So uh, I was a young man when I came down here, uh, (laughs) real green behind the ears. Um, But we're from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, Lancaster County, Chester County. It's kind of like right in the middle. Mm -hmm. We, uh, Me and my wife were not farmers. Um, You know, we were surrounded by farm, the Amish, of course. Right. And... uh, Grew up all of our lives surrounded by Amish and never once really still even had a clue. Hmm. Um, hmm. You know, a lot of the times the, the farms around us were just playgrounds to go get in trouble in and stuff. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. that was it, you know. And looking back, there's a lot of like things that I've done in the past where I'm, as a farmer now, I just look back like, what a God, what a god-awful <laughs> kid I was. I mean, kicking holes in the farmer's silage to climb on top of it. Oh, and, lordy. Just awful stuff, but uh, but what happened is uh, my wife and I at the time we she was pregnant with our first uh, child, and it just kind of was like this real sobering moment. Like, what do we do for this thing? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you know we have like no no wealth, no you know all this like you know stuff. It was just two young folks. Just what do we offer this child? And right. um, you know, it was like right around the time we were kind of having some uh, spiritual growth within mm-hmm. within our you know relationship and in ourselves and then also we were coming into the knowledge of the food industry and how all this food in the supermarket was potentially not very good for us and right, um, right, right. and so in this perfect and, and all of those realizations are heightened by having a kid yes well that was the big thing was yeah. like you know the only thing we could really i couldn't offer like a million dollar inheritance and you know or just you know just all these perks to life but right. i could give this child an a, a full attention to his health yeah and um and so uh you know it, watching documentary the biggest one was the food inc documentary mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just whew, yeah i mean it was like Me a shocker you yeah. know that early in the game and so uh 
we started pursuing local food and luckily we were around all those Amish, but you know, a lot of the Amish do not practice organic practices mm -hmm. and all that. So, uh, so while we turned to more fresher food, you know, we just were still learning. Yeah. And then we kind of learned more about like, you know, the organic pesticide sustainability, just right. stuff like that. And then right. the big one was raw milk. Yeah. Once we hit that raw milk stride, I mean, we were, we were all in. Just, and at that point you were consumers of raw milk. Oh yeah. 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 And so we found a, uh, Amish, uh, dairy farmer, organic dairy grass fed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he was also just as knowledgeable, which is a very rarity in the Amish community. Mm -hmm. And, um, man, it was just this blessing. He was like, and right down the street from us too, yeah. where we yeah. had this guy, we could go get our fresh milk every week, cheese, butter, cream sour cream cottage cheese i mean the <laughs> works like up up north the laws are different so raw milk products is actually a lot more available mm -hmm. um and so the amish there's a lot of amish who who engage in it yeah and so uh but we became really good friends with the amishman right and right. uh it turned out the amish uh the amishman we were friends with he uh knew dave rafi from rafi cattle company down here in southwest virginia and he was he would buy steers from dave red devon grass grass steers and then he would buy them from dave take them back up to pennsylvania finish them off and sell them as grass finished meat mm -hmm, and um mm -hmm. they had a, a good relationship and so but the amish still kind of had this like idea that we were just crazy because we were a little fanatical i mean we were really vocal about how we wanted a milk cow we wanted to buy property we wanted to you know homestead for ourselves so let's let's fast forward a bit so you met dave rafi and dave's a a whole story worth telling oh, in yeah. himself such a fascinating person who's who's in a number of ways done a lot for the local food scene in southwest virginia even though he's rarely here anymore but but anyway let's kind of just kind of jump to when you move down and then let's uh let's be brief with that and then move on to goshen itself as it is today yes so uh, it was about July 1st, I think. And so the Amishman told Dave that he knew this family. Dave was looking for uh, somebody manages farm. And he was having a lot of hard time finding locals. So they were just talking on the phone, and Dave was just telling them, you know, like, as friends, like, oh, yeah. man, I can't find nobody. And the Amish guy was just like, well, we know this crazy family. That's, <laughs> like, really into this. And, and so uh, Dave, like, uh, called me the next morning, and it was, like, kind of like a joke. You know, like 500 miles away, you have a job for me. I wasn't even looking for a job. Right. You know, and I didn't get the cue. For, the Amishman didn't fill oh, me he in didn't, ahead He of didn't time, give you so, a warning. Yeah. No. And so, uh, you know, he was so determined, he came up the very next day to interview us. And I was just like, you know, we're just sitting there going. He came to you? Yeah. Wow. And, uh, I'm, you know, it was just like kind of this. So we sat in this uh, Dunkin' Donuts parking lot for like three hours and talked. And it sounded fascinating. I mean, you know, yeah. but like it was still this idea of breaking the mold of, moving away and changing the entire, you know, being of our existence at yeah. the time. And, uh, and he refused. And I was just like, look, you know, it's nah, we're not, you know, he was just like, I refuse to take no for an answer. You need to come down to the farm and finish the second half of this interview. And, uh, and then you can tell me no. And for us, you know, we just had one, no, we had our second child at that time. And so we could still travel a little bit. So mm -hmm. we were like road trip, you know, yeah, and that right, was right. it. That was a new place we'd never been to. That's kind of yeah. what bought us into the idea of coming down here. And uh, I think. And we, since we have listeners beyond Southwest Virginia, where you ended up, this place that you came to see, is in Russell County, Virginia, which, to situate it for folks who don't know the area, is, is both still a very agricultural area, 
but it's also the beginning of the coalfields territories of yes. southwest Virginia. So it's got this mix of a long history of extracting coal, but also a long history of really good farming. Yeah, we're right on the boundary where I think we, we are the boundary where all the farms are because you still have to kind of go into the country where all the coal begins. Right, right. But I think that's all the coal workers. The We lived in the band where right. they probably all lived right. and whatnot. Right. But so, yeah, we came down, and I, the truth be told, I mean, we got off at 81 at uh, exit 35 in, in uh, Chilhowie, mm-hmm. and by the time we hit, hit Saltville, we never even made it to the farm, and we knew we were moving. And wow. so this is the first, you know— uh, first week in July when we came down here. So that's that's when that all happened. We moved down here 30 days later. August 1st, we were residents of Virginia and working for a guy having zero clue how to do a farm. You know, so, uh, so it was like almost... Everything the way it all lined up to us, you know, in our in our faith walk, it just seemed like everything lined up for for what we were wanting and and praying for, if you right. will. Yeah, and it just you know, it was all there for us to take. All yeah. we had to do was yeah, yeah. do it. And so you went from being total novices, jumping into this completely new lifestyle in a completely new place. Dave mentoring you. You're doing a lot of reading and visiting other farms. But fast forward to the present. And you all are among the leading proponents and practitioners of a kind of an integrated grass-based livestock operation. Yeah. So we we'll hopefully have a little bit of time for those listeners who don't know much about the environmental and health uh, benefits of livestock farming. But let, let's jump over that a little bit and just describe Goshen Homestead to the listeners because it is such a diverse operation. What do you do there on those, what is it, 110 acres? What no, do you have? Well, we have 110 acres of farmland and 40 more forests. Okay, so all right, 150 100, acres. 150 acres yeah, total. yeah. But, um, you know, so we are doing everything. I mean, it's it's a diverse, like you mentioned, a really diverse operation. So we are, we do have a beef herd uh, that we're running, uh, rotational grazing. Right. Uh, we also have a dairy herd, Jerseys, which we are uh, facilitating uh, our Goshen Homestead Creamery products, which are for sale throughout the region, and also a raw milk herd share program, which uh, allows folks access legally to unprocessed milk. Right. Then we do meat chickens, and we raise uh, them all season long from April to November. And then we have egg operation. And then we have, you know, it just gets kind of, you know, with all of our children getting older, they've kind of ventured into a lot of other stuff. So we also have honey, lamb, and uh, soon goats. We just, uh, my one 11-year-old daughter bought her own little flock of uh Nigerian dwarfs, and she is planning on milking them next spring. Wow. And those kind of operations are just not going to be available to the public. But but the way that we're set up and the way that everything's been growing, um, once she's kind of got a, the quality factor down, she's free to, you know, we will let her ha- have freedom to sell her product out, uh, you know, in our marketplace. And, um, you know, we're talking, you know, who knows, goat cheese, yeah, you know, yeah, raw, yeah. raw goat milk, her right, shares. You right, know. right. Um, and, and from the cow's milk, uh, the, your two main products, although I know you've, you've played around with others, are milk, which is pasteurized at a low temperature, yes. one that's sufficient but doesn't kill all the good stuff, yep. and yogurt. Yogurt has been a huge, huge part of your business. Is that right? Yes. Well, so we have milk, yogurt, buttermilk, and chocolate milk, and all of these items are, um, 
you know, minimally processed. So our it's a micro dairy is what we ended up building mm -hmm. on the farm. And uh, it is the ability to meet all the regulations. And so with the pasteurization, a lot of the market standard is 160, 180 degrees, which neutralizes the milk basically of all living components. Uh, the law, though, says 145 because that's where all the bad bacteria is neutralized. So that's mm -hmm. where we... We stick with that, and uh, and so it's low temperature, vat pasteurized, and um, it's all fresh right off the farm. I mean, if you're seeing something at the market, we probably just made it two days before. And I've got to say, I, I know I'm definitely not a journalist, but journalists, when they're interviewing somebody or doing a story about somebody, if they have some kind of personal connection, they always feel the need to divulge that, like just in case it's biasing them. Well, I got to tell you. Our life, in many ways, revolves around uh, the produce from our farm and everything else from Dwayne. Yeah. So, <laughs> just, just so listeners understand, we are part of the herd share and have been and been getting raw milk. And and if you don't know anything about Jersey cows, it's spectacular milk. It's it's like almost having a milkshake without any added cream. We get their chickens, which are the best and biggest free-range chickens I've ever seen. We get eggs from Dwayne's daughter, Sarah, uh, and we get much, not all, of our ground beef. And occasionally, I also buy their roasted coffee, for God's sakes. Oh, yeah. They do coffee, Yeah, I forgot about that one. <laughs> so this is a highly diverse operation and, and one that really practices conservation and stewardship to the max. So they're, they're not extracting from the soil. They're restoring it. Yes. I can testify that to that having been there. So let's focus in a little bit. Within the micro dairy, you decided to go that route because the the market for raw milk was only so big and you felt that if you had a low pasture, low temp pasteurized, you could sell more? What, why did you go that route to build the micro dairy? Well, it's always kind of our dairy has been our calling. So, you know, that is kind of what we wanted to do. And regardless of how foolish it seemed, mm -hmm. when you just like hear the news of how dairies are going out of business all over right, the country right, right, in right. mass right, all the right. time, we just felt like a small scale is, you know, because, like, if I'm buying milk or if I'm buying products from other farmers, you know, just having that avenue to, to know the farmer, talk with them, come see their farm, you know, see that there's a really regenerative practice, healthy animals equal healthy food. You know, there's not very many opportunities to, um, to have that access in the open market. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of farms are just, you know, not facilitating sales to the end user they're just paying middlemans who then right you move, know move the product somewhere and the middlemans will just tell you anything you want to hear to sell that product right, you know that's right. what their job is so and not that it isn't our job to do that also but like you know we we like the transparency and yeah. we want that so we just know that that's that's if we could offer milk which is not available in that transparency then then it should do well and yeah. it and it has done pretty well so yeah. And so then we, you know, st milk and yogurt is the, was the next one Yeah, uh, where we just felt like yogurt is, I mean, that's just such a great product, period. Right. And a personal aside again there, my daughter Maria, who's um, very much into healthy eating and taking care of herself, 
um, she swears it's the best yogurt she's ever had. And she's had a lot of yogurts. And it's almost Greek yogurt. It's so thick and rich. I like it better than Greek yogurt, but it's almost of that consistency. It's just wonderful. Well, I know that it's batch to batch. You know, we are handcrafting these batches. Right, right. So some batches nail it like to that thickness and yeah. some are just a little bit. But the yeah. literally our yogurt recipe is just milk and culture. Yeah. And um it is pretty stellar. So let me let me talk a little bit about the financing or ask you to talk a little bit about the financing. This is a particularly innovative uh, thing that, that Dwayne did. It, if you've followed Ruby, you know that uh, – and, and actually as part of the Rural New Deal, part of what we talk about is mobilizing local capital. That when you need money for something, as Dwayne did to build his dairy – the first inclination most people have is to either go to the banks or try to get a loan from the Small Business Association or things like that. And I'm not putting that down. Local banks play a critical role. But you tapped into local capital that was just your neighbors, your yeah. customers. So tell us just again, as briefly as you can, describe how you laid that out and how you got the capital you need from your customers. Yeah, well, I have to attribute almost all this to a friend of mine back in Pennsylvania. He, uh, best friend growing up, you know, he's got a business mind. And uh, I was, you know, I've, I just had, I've had this idea for the micro dairy creamery. So in my head, the business plan, if you will, was all intact. Mm -hmm. It just never was written out yet. Mm -hmm. And I went to my friend and I was just talking to him and I was just pitching him this idea like, you know, what if I did a GoFundMe or something like that and just, you know, ask people to donate, you know, we could probably get this together. And it was like, he gave me a smack on the head. He was like, what's wrong with you, man? He's like, that's not how you build a business by bumming. You know, what are you bumming money at, at lunch? You know, off of your <laughs> lunch mates, nickel and diamond everybody. So, you know, you can have a pocket full of cash to go home with. Like, it was almost like a switch came on. Like, oh, I get that. Like, but once it kind of all clicked into place, I literally, within almost a month, six weeks, I had the whole business plan laid out. I had a uh, financial advisor go through everything with it and uh, look it over. And it, it was a really, it was one of the better business plans. And then that's when, you know, I was just like, all right, well, who do I, you know. Who's going to fund it? Yeah, like, who do I give this to? And I had some ideas, but then, like, I just started talking to everybody at the market when yeah. we were, you know, delivering herd share milk. And um, I found, like, a ton of herd share members were just like, I'm very interested in that. Can I have a business plan? And so I ended up just start focusing on talking with people and giving out that business plan to my own customers. Uh, and it ended up being that like everybody who invested in the company are herd share members. Right. So like the raw remember folks that herd share means those are the people who've been getting the raw milk for yes. some period of time. So the unprocessed milk folk saw the value in having a processed milk. And it only took uh, 30 more days to raise up all the money. 75 grand is what we went with. And then seven months later, you know, I built that all myself. Mm -hmm. um, right. Part of why it was so affordable was because you did the work. Yeah. Would have been, what, double that if you'd contracted it I out? wouldn't. I mean, back then, it was actually like plywood was like under 10 bucks a sheet. You yeah, know what I mean? Like yeah, It was yeah. like a, you right. know, those were the golden days. You right. know? And uh, <laughs> But even so, it, even there, it probably would have been something that you could have paid back over time. But again, just to reiterate that, so roughly a dozen, I'm probably not exactly right, households, all of whom were customers. Yep of Goshen Farmstead became the investors. And we are, to this day, because my wife Lori and I are among them, we are shareholders yep. in it. We have annual meetings and Dwayne shares the finances. And here's the real kicker, although not 
every one of the shareholders sees it this way. But the truth is that from day one, we've been getting what amounts to a 5% return on our investment. It's just that we've been getting it in the form of product. We've been getting our milk or yogurt, or some people have chosen other things, buttermilk, I think. And the, the value of what you get as an investor is equivalent to 5% of what you invested. And I don't know whether you had intended that. Now, now think about that. So many businesses that are held up as huge successes, they go years, sometimes a decade or more before the investors get a penny. And we started getting it from day one. You all committed to a permanent fixture. And, um, you know, if the sink ships, we all sink. Right, sink. Right, if right, it, right. You know, if the tide rises, all, all you know, all boats rise, right, you know, right, so right, it's right. a, yeah. you guys are like more, you got more skin in the game and it just seemed like I would be double dipping from you guys to right. just charge you again for the cash. Sure. But, <laughs> but even, even that aside, which that's a gracious way of looking at it. I mean, I think it's a model that more successful or let's say emerging aspiring entrepreneurs ought to consider you. I don't think you can turn to people when you don't have any experience, but you had a track record. You were producing your, your farm was already diversifying in multiple ways. People were aware of the consistency and quality. There's, there's not a lot, but there's other people in that position who never think to turn to their own supporters yep. and turn them into financial supporters. Yeah, yeah. It's really something. And I think that, um, you know, ultimately, it's, uh, you know, the, the in-house mindset, because I do know a lot of people will just chase the kind of like, they'll just go, they'll build a business according to what kind of free money is available. Right, right. And I mean, I've sat on a lot of things in that, that mindset, but, you know, it just seems like it's not like, you know, for us, it's, it's, it's our passion. I mean, yeah. we're raising our children on our f- farm. We're all eating this food, you know, we're, and there are a lot of farmers out there who will milk cows. And then go to the store to buy their milk, right, you know, right, like, right. because there's the disconnect to even their own food that close. Yeah, yeah. And I knew I knew plenty of farmers who were part of Appalachian Harvest that raised organic produce and then turned around and shopped at yeah whatever food store. city. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so it's uh, so for us, you know, it's kind of like us first. You know, we're we're always everything that we do. You know, the quality you speak of is devoted to our consumption. You know, because we want the best for ourselves, and right. then, and it's just kind of almost like, from that bounty, you know, we can share, and we can, you know, it can be spread out, right, right. from that core right, right, right. purpose, and, yeah, yeah. Um, right, which is a great core purpose. So even if you weren't a substantial player in the market in Abingdon and Blacksburg and Bristol and Asheville and whatnot. Uh, it still would be a a valuable endeavor. So we are just about out of time, and I'm going to bring up your favorite subject, the federal government. government. And I want you to to talk very briefly because, again, with some trepidation, Rural Urban Ridge has ventured forth with this rural New Deal. And it's it's more than just saying the federal government should give money to rural communities because they're struggling. We The Rural New Deal has actually been developed based on the experience of a lot of farmers, a lot of rural development people that I know. And so we're, we're saying, yes, invest in rural communities, but we're also saying do it in a way that actually enables farmers, entrepreneurs, local people to determine their own destiny. Don't, don't give us a cookie cutter top down. So that's the hope. What is your sense of the most important way that the federal government 
could actually be a force for good in rural communities or right down to a business like yours. Yeah. Well, I know, uh, you know, it's by their standards uh, on the regulatory thing that most states adopt all the regulations. But uh, like Virginia is one that actually goes above and beyond some of the federal guidelines. Like, you know, if the on the federal level, it's legal to sell raw milk mm-hmm. within state. It's Virginia who kind of makes it the big problem Difficult, that it is. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why Pennsylvania can, you can go to the store and have raw milk and pasteurized milk on the same shelf. Mm-hmm. But, um, but for us, you know, what we've found is that like, you know, with our chicken program, for instance, we started our chickens back in 2012, um, under Rafi. He just, that was like a perk of working for him. He said, mm-hmm. just do stuff, use the land and <laughs> make your own money. This too, is before you, know? you had bought the land. Yes. Yeah. And so we ended up building a chicken business over those years, but it was from the ground up. It was, you know, we started with 25 birds. It was a, a log with two nails in it and a hatchet. You know, it was like, <laughs> but there was no, we didn't need like the $50,000 investment to right. just be able to sell a single chicken. Right. We, we started there. And then as it started to move and we started to make money, we would buy, a, you know, some cones or we would buy it stainless steel tables and we would buy a good scalder and a plucker and and now we're actually at the point where if there was a regulation that came along requiring inspection we probably would pass mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. everything's mm-hmm. kind of all up updated to the point where we're we're doing a real professional job mm-hmm. slaughtering chickens but um but you know there was that there was no rungs missing on the bottom of the ladder you know and so uh same with the herd share you know it's a great way to have one cow and actually make a residual income on mm-hmm. the farm mm-hmm doing something you're probably already doing for yourself. Mm-hmm. Eggs has exemptions, a lot of, you know, baking breads and stuff like that. There's a lot of different exemptions um, within the law. And those have always been the ones where you start off taking the little risk, mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. you know, betting, not betting the whole farm on it, but mm-hmm. just, you know, Hey, here's a couple of dollars. Let's see what, how people like this product. And then when people like it, you grow it, you invest more in it, you invest more in it. Next thing you know, it's a thriving arm of the business. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. You know, we found everything that had that kind of bottom rung still in it, mm-hmm. um, they were, that's where we thrived. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, even with the creamery, all we had to, we had to a lot of money to get the first 10 rungs back so we can climb that ladder and right. start doing that. Right. And, um, you know, that just means that for the most part, most people can't just jump into stuff. Right. And so right. it's just, it's a, it's far out there. You know, it started, um, this area specifically, from what I understand in talking with everybody and understanding when the rag came in and stuff, it was uh, everybody went hard tobacco because there was guaranteed money in tobacco. Right. So when you're a farmer, you kind of... That's, that's a big thing. A guaranteed market like yeah. tobacco farmers had is a huge thing. Yeah. So while they were doing that, the hard <laughs> regs kind of settled in and nobody mm-hmm. was affected by them. So nobody was protesting about them. So if they said, you know, you can't sell stuff on a roadside stand anymore... Nobody was really doing that because they were devoted to the tobacco where the money was. And then so when they pulled the tobacco out of the region, everybody just thought that they would go back to the type of farming that they did. And there was a big loss of farmers after tobacco left, mainly because they didn't realize that all these things became illegal and they just couldn't go back doing the things that they've done before they converted all their farms to that, that specific industry. Whereas like in Pennsylvania, the Amish... They were doing the farmers markets and the farm stands and the raw milk. And when they tried to hit the hard reg in the fifties and sixties, they were just like, uh, no. <laughs> and there was enough people just protesting that the government was like, all right, yeah, yeah we'll write you out a little exemption. Right, and it's right, all right, good. Right, and so right. like they protected a lot of that. Whereas like everybody was just 
you know, preoccupied down here. So, so, you know, a lot of people lost their farms rather than went back and then, you know, cause we would have had farmers markets decades before, right. um, thriving probably in every town just because farmers would have just gone back to that. That would have been the way to keep your farm. And, you know, we would, that culture would have been a lot further along. Right. Right. So, so it was kind of recreated in a sense. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. for me, it's always just the regulation. I mean, get out of our way. I, know, I understand that there's a, you know, safety factor and it's, there is definitely a need for some kind of standard Yeah. at some point in it. But right. like when it comes to just you and your 12 neighbors in the neighborhood, just kind of everybody just stopping and buying their eggs from you or their milk from you or right. that the government really shouldn't be involved in that at that level. scale. Yeah. Right, right, right. I've often talked about the notion of scale appropriate regulations. You yes. know, when when uh, IBP or Cargill makes a major mistake or Tyson, the implications are that hundreds of thousands or millions of people <laughs> could we'll be, be affected. affected. Yeah. But that as big as Goshen has become, relatively speaking, it's still very much tight connections to their neighbors and yeah. a relatively limited imp- impact. And it would be something like this just, uh, you know, because the regulators and the lobbyists will use these kind of numbers where they'll go, um, you know, the CDC reports that, you know, there was six outbreaks last year on raw milk mm-hmm. and, you know, and but there was only two outbreaks with pasteurized milk with mm-hmm. the dairy industry. And when you look at that, you're like, oh, six versus two. Obviously, that's a big number. But those six outbreaks, like, affected 17 people. Right. And those two <laughs> outbreaks affected 150,000 people. But that's where they don't let them numbers. That's not what they focus yeah, yeah, on. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Right. They right. just look at it like, you know, on a as they spin it. To their favor. Okay, great. Well, Dwayne, thank you so much for coming in. This has Absolutely. been great. Um, this is Two Worlds, One Country. I'm your host, Anthony Flacavento, and we've been talking to Dwayne McIntyre, the owner of Goshen Farmstead and Goshen Creamery, uh, one of the really bright lights in a great local food scene in southwestern Virginia.